BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Even for those of us who live and love politics, these are troubling times because Politics has gotten more divisive, more personal, and more ugly than ever before in our lifetime. And it's not just extremists on the fringes anymore. Even mainstream conservatives are now using politics at the local, state, and federal level to roll back our most basic rights and to reverse many of the advances in freedom that we've won over the last 50 years or more, especially for women, LGBTQ Americans, and people of color. These reactionary forces are so active on so many levels, it's no exaggeration to say that our very democracy is at stake, and yet few people are writing about it or raising the warning flag. Well, today, here's one who is writing and talking about it all the time, warning that our democracy itself is in peril. Today's guest, Ron Brownstein, Senior Political Analyst for CNN and Editorial Director for Atlantic Media. Ron Brownstein, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Bill, always good to be with you. (laughs) Thank you. Man, there is so much going on. Uh, Look, neither you nor I are foreign correspondents, but uh, I I do have to ask you, kind of a big difference between... um, the way Republicans think about uh, Zelensky today and the way they thought about Zelensky when Donald Trump was trying to extort money from him, right? Yeah, no, it, it really is extraordinary. I mean, every Republican in both chambers, except yeah. for Mitt Romney, mm-hmm. voted to exonerate Donald Trump for extorting Zelensky by withholding the very kind of military aid that we are rushing to them now uh, uh, until he agreed to manufacture dirt on Biden. And you don't really see a lot of contrition among Republican members <laughs> of Congress saying maybe that was the wrong thing to do, I, you know, uh, and I, it, 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 mm. it is I, I was listening to a focus group the other day of young voters oh. and literally none of them, you know, that, that, that an organization was holding a focus group and sometimes they let journalists listen in. Literally none of them remembered that it was for extorting Ukraine that Trump wasn't was um, impeached. Uh, but look, uh, you know, not hard to make this relevant in a midterm election. But I do think it would be relevant if Donald Trump runs again, if he's the if he's the Republican nominee. Uh, right, and and there are even now Trump has backed off a little bit, but um, there are Republicans out there who have been flat out pro Putin. Your friend of mine, Tucker Carlson, right. Yeah, and well, and Marjorie Taylor Greene, and right. Look, the Marjorie Taylor Greene comments are 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 even more interesting to me in some ways than Tucker because sure, um, because you know Kevin McCarthy is essentially protecting her. I mean, he is refusing to discipline her in any way. I wrote last year, early last year, that 
if you look at kind of public opinion attitudes, the extremist wing of the GOP has become too big to fail. I think it's become too big for what we would consider the, the, the mainstream party leadership to discipline because it represents too big a share of the base to get into a fight with. And it's a piece of the base uh, and, and it's uh, elected officials who are operating under, I think, the explicit protection of Trump. So, you know, when McCarthy says that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to get her uh, committees back and is going to get better committees. And, you know, this is someone who is who is essentially parroting Russian lines, uh, you know, about about the war. Um, it is a separate conversation and maybe relevant to the broader conversation we're having is that over my career covering politics, and I, and I don't really fully know the answer to this, although I have a few thoughts, um, Republicans have been more successful at making kind of the median average Democrat pay a price for the words and deeds of the most extreme members of the caucus to a far greater extent than Democrats have been able to do that to Republicans. I mean, you know, you don't, you don't. Oh. See yeah. Marjorie Taylor Greene being hung around the neck effectively of Republicans in swing districts uh, in in the fall, basically saying, "Okay, if you elect this person, this is who you're empowering." Republicans have had a lot more success doing that, you know, with Democrats uh, than than vice versa, and it's I, I'm not sure I fully understand why. No, they sure have, and they've done it successfully, and and still do it successfully. Look at look at the the squad, right? I mean. Right. As Nancy Pelosi said once, there are four votes, but for the Republicans, they say, these are the people who are running the country. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, you know, it, 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 there is, it is, it is more of a team sport than it used to be, right? I mean, it is more of a parliamentary, quasi-parliamentary system. People don't vote as much in comparing two individuals. They're voting more about which party they want to be in control. Um, uh, but as Pelosi said, it's four votes. And now Republicans have, have done a pretty good job over the years of finding those four votes, you know, whoever they are, and Pelosi herself is often it, and basically saying to voters in, you know, kind of center-right places, are these the people you really want to put in power? It'll be in now, you know, now that you have such an obvious uh, uh, foothold or beachhead for the extremist wing of the GOP inside the Congress, and you have McCarthy protecting them and sending clear signals that he is not going to rein them in or discipline them, it'll be interesting to see if Democrats can do the opposite more effectively than they have historically. Well, we'll see if that develops as an issue in 2022, as you just pointed out. But one thing that the Republicans certainly are. Uh, building branding is an issue. I just call it book burning, right? Or Ooh. book banning. I mean, and it started in Virginia, of course, when uh, Terry McAuliffe, in felicitously perhaps said, parents shouldn't be deciding what their kids can read in school. But th this has now become state after state after state, uh, a serious movement, right? Tennessee across the board. Mm -hmm. uh, no, what's, it, it what's is, that all about? It is uh, what we are seeing in the schools is an incredibly broad and serious movement. And it is itself just one component of a broader uh, offensive that is going on in the red states. So you have 23 states, almost half the states where Republicans have unified control of government. And I would argue to you that what we are seeing across those states with the support of the Republican majority on the Supreme Court and critical 
defense being provided by Republicans in the Senate wielding the filibuster, what we are seeing is the governors and legislatures in those Republican control states working across a broad range of issues to roll back the rights revolution of the past six decades. It's, I, I really think it's nothing mm. less than that. I mean, the general trajectory, not telling you anything you don't know, but the general trajectory of American life since the 1960s, both in Supreme Court decisions and in congressional actions, has been to nationalize more rights, to increase the number of basic civil rights and liberties that are available to Americans in every state and to reduce the ability of states to trim or diverge from those rights. So we're talking about everything from the criminal justice rulings, uh, the Miranda rights in the 1960s, uh, the Supreme Court um, uh, establishing the right to privacy and ending state bans on contraception, the Supreme Court ending the state bans on interracial marriage, the Supreme Court nationalizing the right to abortion and later nationalizing the right uh, to same-sex marriage, uh, and congressional actions obviously over the years ending segregation in the 60s, the Voting Rights Act, Title IX on gender discrimination in the 70s, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act under George H.W. Bush, across a whole range, a broad range of basic uh, liberties and rights that affect how we live. The general trend has been that we are raising the floor of national rights that are available in every state and reducing the ability of states to restrict those rights. Uh, and what we are seeing with an incredible speed since 2021, I believe, is a broad effort in the red states to unravel that six-decade tradition. I mean, we are seeing states that are moving to restrict abortion, moving to restrict voting rights, banning transgender girls from high school sports, now banning parents from providing uh, care for transgender uh, youth. We are seeing increased limits on protesting. We are seeing restrictions on what teachers can say, as you noted, about race and gender and now sexual orientation in the classroom. We are seeing book banning um, across, we're talking about half a dozen fronts or more Many of the 23 red states are pursuing multiple, you know, multiple uh, of these of these paths. And some places like Florida or Tennessee or Texas uh, are doing almost all of them. Um, and and it is the I think, Bill, I think the magnitude of what's happening because there has been so much going on at the national level. Um, I think we are not fully, no one is fully comprehending the magnitude of what's happening, but it is possible that we will get as soon as, as, as the end of this legislative session and feel that we have taken a giant step back toward a pre-60s world, toward a 50s world in which your basic freedoms vary enormously depending on where you live, which is something that we have generally been uh, reversing, you know, since at least the 1960s. And you could argue since the Supreme Court applied the uh, the Bill of Rights to the states, which was what, in the, in the 1940s. So uh, it's extraordinary what's happening. And, and I don't think there is enough attention to it at any level. Although I will say the Biden administration is engaging much more on these fights now than they were six months ago. Uh, but it's also happening in so many places and and and, and in many cases uh, uh, states we may not pay a lot of attention to, right? I don't think anybody understands the severity or the danger, yeah. really, of what's going on. I mean, our democracy is at risk. That's yeah. not an exaggeration. No, no we're, 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 look, I, I think there, there are a couple problems. As you point out, uh, there are a lot of states 
doing this. And we don't really have a tradition of kind of national coverage, mm -hmm. understanding what's happening in a broad range of states. Right. Second, as I said, I think the Biden administration was slow to react to the magnitude of what's happening for understandable reasons in some ways in that, you know, when they came in after all the battles that Trump had with blue state governors over responding to the pandemic, their initial goal was to show that they could work with governors of both parties. Um, and so I think they were slow to recognize both how much red state governors in many ways were trying to impede what they were doing on mm -hmm. the pandemic and this broader recoil from, uh, you know, that we are seeing uh, across the red states. And then the other, the other big problem, I think, is that people have tended to see these as separate individual fights. Certainly the restrictions on voting, you know, the 19 states that have passed laws making it tougher to vote, that has gotten a lot of attention. There's been a medium amount of attention on the restrictions on abortion, uh, you know, solid amount of attention. There's been some attention on the LGBTQ rights issues, less attention, uh, I think, nationally on the classroom censorship and book banning issues, less still on the protest. But however much there has been in each one of these lanes, each one of these verticals, focusing on any one of them misses the point. The point is that all of these things are happening and that there is an underlying kind of connection between all of these separate siloed fights. And it is that the connection is an attempt to reverse the basic trend toward nationalizing more rights that we've been living through for at least 60 years, maybe since Brown versus Board of Education. Yeah. So we can't talk about them all, but you mentioned abortion. And uh, this is one of the things that you tweeted about. I mean, the... <laughs> It's hard to believe how extreme these laws are. So Texas passes the six-week bill. The Supreme Court says, that's fine. And then Idaho comes along with this law, new law that says that if a woman is raped, the rapist's mother, the rapist's brothers and sisters, the grandparents, that they could sue the doctor who performed the procedure, right? In yep. case of rape. I mean- yeah. Tennessee is heading it's in the same direction. Uh, they, hard to believe how that. extreme that is. Broadly speaking, it is remarkable to me uh, the confidence with which Republican governors and legislators are hurtling down these roads on all of these fronts. I mean, essentially, they are enshrined, in, you know, in many cases, in states that are changing demographically, where a majority of everyone who turns 18 already every year are kids of color. That's true in a lot of the states that we're talking about, certainly Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, uh, among others. Um, they are moving to enshrine the cultural uh, and social values of essentially one segment of the population, and in most cases, a shrinking segment of the population, which is older, white, non-urban, and Christian. They are, they are, you know, whether it's on the LGBTQ issues or the discussion of race or gender in the classroom, on all of these fronts, uh, they are basically writing into law, into state law, uh, the demands, the grievances, the the viewpoints. Mm -hmm of this one group. And they are betting they can do this without provoking either a backlash among suburban voters or a really elevated turnout among the younger generations who are the direct target of much of this. Um, and, you know, we'll see. But right now, it does not appear the Democrats, you know, have had much success, I think, almost anywhere 
at kind of engaging voters on what's happening, making it a kind of uh, you know a relevant issue on your decision on whether or not to vote. Uh, it's 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 all you know happening under the cover of inflation. Now the war in Ukraine uh, that that's demanding attention. Uh, but as I said before, I mean. It is extraordinary the magnitude of of the change that that we're. I you and I both covered and lived through the 2011 2012 legislative sessions, which were the first after the Tea Party, you know, uh, mm-hmm. emerged as a significant force. And this goes way beyond that in terms of being alert to the right in many of these states. Uh, so uh, I want to I want to circle back here to uh, to the book banning aspect mm-hmm. of it. Right? I mean, it isn't in effect the goal to keep an entire generation of kids who are in school today in the dark about American history and what America is all about. I think there's a significant element of that. You know, uh, uh, it's important, I think, to view the restrictions on classroom teaching about how teachers can talk about race, how they can talk about gender, how they can talk about sexual orientation. And then beyond that, the specific eff- you know, efforts to make it easier to for disgruntled individual parents to uh, force the removal of books from schools. I think all of that is the bookend to the voter restrictions. Um, the, the, vote, the voter restrictions are about changing the electorate today, the composition of the electorate. Uh, and all of these educational restrictions are about changing the attitudes of the electorate tomorrow. These are usually presented uh, as uh, the the sponsors will say this is about trying to ensure that nobody, i.e. no white kids in school, uh, feel feel uncomfortable, huh? (laughs) Are made to feel uncomfortable or harmed, you know, or or guilty uh, about uh, about the the lesson. Um, But this is happening primarily in states where kids of color are already a majority of the school system. I mean, you know, in mm-hmm. Texas, I think it's 70, it's over 70% now uh, are, are, are kids of color. Uh, Florida, Georgia, big majorities. Uh, uh, and in, and in, other, in other states, it's, it's roughly half. Na- nationwide, kids of color have been a majority of the public school system, K-12 system since 2014. The, the class that enters this September, six months from now, will be the last high school class ever when a majority of the graduates are white. So, you know, mm. you can say, is this really about ensuring, you know, protecting the feelings of white kids? Or is it about shaping the perceptions of non-white kids about either current or historic uh, inequities? You know, I, I, I've talked to experts who have said, look, I mean, given the fact of how many um, uh, uh given how prevalent school segregation, especially by income is, uh, remains in the U.S., if you're telling, if you're basically limiting the ability of teachers to uh, talk about systemic inequity in our society, you're basically telling kids in, in schools where most of their classmates are low income that it's their fault, that it's their yeah. parents' fault. Yeah. You know? And right. so while we talk about you know, while, while this is often presented as preserving the feelings of white kids, there's incredibly little discussion uh, about what it means for the, uh, you know, kind of intellectual and emotional development of, of non-white kids. One last point on this, uh, our mutual friends at UCLA, uh, one of the institutes there, you know, have studied the emergence of, of these efforts to restrict um, curriculum. Uh, not at the state level, looking at the districts that have had these, because there's, in addition to all the state laws, there, there are fights popping up all over the country at districts. And what they found is that by far, 
these kinds of efforts to restrict curriculum are unfolding much more in districts that have experienced demographic change than those that have not. Districts where the white share of the population and the white share of the students is going down, those are places that are much more likely to see parents. And it is, you know, almost always, almost entirely white parents right. uh, raising these objections. You know, it's like the last gasp of white nationalism, maybe, uh, but... Um... Uh, hopefully the last guess. Yeah, I, I just, uh, I, I, I remember one headline from the New York Times recently, uh, op-ed, uh, you just you just can't tell the truth about America. That's basically what they're saying. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, that, that, Ron, that's not the only bad news out there. There's just a lot more we can talk about that's going on. We have to take a quick break, okay? Uh, hold on for just a second, and then we'll be uh, right back here on the Bill Press Pod. Today's podcast brought to you by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Yes, those good men and women, 1.3 million working men and women strong members of the UFCW. Under President Mark Perrone, they service all of us in many, many different ways at our big retail stores like Nordstrom and Macy's. The people that take care of us at our great grocery chains like Safeway and Whole Foods. Those on the front line and our meat and poultry processing plants, chemical plants, and cannabis plants. We thank the men and women of the UFCW for their great work taking care of all of us Americans, and we thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. Go to their website, check it out at ufcw.org. You'll be amazed at all the good causes they're involved in. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back. Today's guest, uh, a good friend and frequent guest on the Bill Press Pod, Ron Brownstein, who is, of course, senior editor at Atlantic. Uh, you see him all the time as senior political uh, analyst on CNN and author of the great book about the great year 1974 in Los Angeles, Rock Me on the Water. Out in paperback. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. So here's something that shook me the other day. I saw in the New York Times again a headline. I've got the article here. 41 million Americans, 16% of Americans say they believe in all three tenets 
of QAnon, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that there's this plot to molest children, right, that's driving the Democratic Party, right. a coming storm is going to sweep elites from power and violence may be necessary to save the country. Mm-hmm. To, I find that shocking and well, well, look, stunning. It's, it's what we were saying before about Marjorie Taylor Greene. It is, it is another proof point that the extremist wing in the GOP coalition has become too big and too powerful for uh, elected leaders to really take a stand uh, against the uh, the member, you know, the 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 Marjorie Taylor Greens and Boberts and others uh, who are reflecting those views. Um, uh, the more broadly, ninety just a few a, a few numbers from recent polls in twenty twenty one. Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a conservative think tank, 90% of Trump voters say that um, Christianity in America is under assault. Um, depending on the survey, two-thirds to three-quarters of Trump voters uh, and, and, and Republicans more broadly say discrimination against whites is now a bigger problem in the U.S. as discrimination against minorities. 71% of Republicans say that the growing number of immigrants threaten the traditional American way of life. Three quarters say the values of Islam are uh, incompatible uh, with American values. And in multiple surveys, including one by AEI, which is a conservative think tank, as well as uh, one done out of Vanderbilt, a majority of Republicans have agreed that the traditional the, the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. This is a broad view inside the coalition. Um, and what makes it uh, work is that the remaining share of Republicans, probably something around a quarter, who don't ascribe to these very extremist views, these increasingly anti-democratic views, these you know xenophobic views, they are still willing to vote for um, officials who, you know, bend toward those perspectives. I mean, that the, the the power of partisanship is so, it's sort of like what, you know, when we saw Bill Barr the other day say, you know, all these horrible things about Donald Trump. And yes, of course, I'd vote yeah, for him. Yeah, of course, I'd vote for him. Because right. the biggest threat to America is, is kind of liberal, uh, you know, the liberal agenda. That is the reality that you have this kind of this, you know, this more center-right traditional you know, traditional 20 years ago piece of the Republican coalition that is w- that is willing to be part of a coalition with voters sharing those views and with elected officials who advance those views. And, um, and, 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 and until that changes, it's hard to see what the incentive is going to be for Republicans to really root this out. Well, what I find most uh, troubling about this and new to me is you know, there are always people with very conservative views, but the one thing everybody always, uh, they, they they sort of stopped at the point of violence, right, to get things done. No, we, we make our change at, at the ballot box, right? Now, these people are saying outright that violence may be necessary uh, to put Donald Trump back in the White House or to get this country back on track or whatever. I mean, they openly uh, endorse the concept of violence in the political arena. Obviously, hello. I think in practice... <laughs> Certainly, not a majority of you know uh, Republicans or any voters would 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 pursue violence. But 
the willingness to accept violence and threats of violence as part of the routine operation of our political system. I mean, the frog is boiling. If you look at the threats that school board members are facing and public health officials and local government officials, um, election officials, there's no question we are in a different world than we were 10 years ago, maybe even a different world than we were five years ago. And I think there's no doubt that what, what has taken us into this new world are the repeated not only uh, it, Trump, it's basically Trump's comments in which he has uh, signaled, you know, a tolerance and even an encouragement of violence. Uh, and so, uh, and the unwillingness of so many Republicans to hold him accountable in any meaningful way for January 6th. Um, th the world is changing uh, and and it is, uh, our, we, are, we are facing political threats of a kind that I don't think you know, I mean, what what would be the what would be the analog? I, I suppose you know, civil rights in the '60s, or you know, if you if if there were any itinerant um, you know abolitionist speakers trying to speak in the South in the 1850s, there weren't. But I mean, what what are the analogs for for the level of threat? And, and intimidation that we are seeing now. You saw the Brennan Center poll the other day on what election officials say they are living with. Yeah, and a lot of them are running for the hills, right? Because because they're under threat, they're, yeah. they're yeah. under siege. Right. Yeah. Yep. Um, by the way, speaking of tolerance, can you imagine if the wife of Stephen Breyer had uh, appeared at an anti-government yeah. rally with right. the outcry from 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 the Republican establishment, and yet we find that wife of Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, was there at the ellipse on January sixth, in addition to being very much identified with the organizations that organized. Mm -hmm the January 6th rally yeah. and subsequent insurrection. Look, this goes back to the broader point. I mean, two broader points. One, that the extremist wing in the GOP is big at this point. It is a it is a substantial part of the coalition. Uh, and at because of that, there is no willingness on the part of the party leadership. I think very limited, limited willingness on the part of the party leadership to discipline, which which basically puts them in a, in a kind of reinforcing cycle where you see more people out there in positions of power, you know, or at least credible positions like members of Congress espousing these views. It probably increases the audience for them. But the other part of it, Bill, I think is equally true, is that Democrats have not shown much ability or even much interest in trying to make the average Republican candidate pay a price for this extremism in the same way that Republicans for decades have worked with considerable success to tar the most centrist possible Democrats, to identify the most you know, median Democrat with the views of the most liberal members of the caucus. Um, and you know, I, you know, it's possible that this year, given how you know problematic Biden's approval rating is, that Democrats may try to focus more than usual on making the case that bringing Republicans back into power in Congress will empower extremists and will put them in a position to try to steal 2024. But my guess is that most Democratic candidates are going to try to pivot pretty quickly to talking about pre-existing conditions and the minimum wage. Yeah. You and I never have a conversation with getting it around to the basic politics of the moment, Ron. So what is your, are, are you as pessimistic as um, most people are about the Democratic Democrats' chances in 2022? As the months go by and Biden's position doesn't materially change, uh, the odds of uh, a tough election obviously increase. But the House, the thing about the House 
is that the real standard for Democrats, I think, has to be uh, holding down their losses to a point where they can plausibly win back the House in in 2024. Um, If you go back, Republicans need five seats to win the House, as you know. Um, If you go back to midterm elections since 1870, since the Civil War, there are only four occasions where the party holding the White House has lost less than five seats. Um, And all of them had really unusual backdrops and events. So it's 34 with the the New Deal and coming out of the Depression, 62 in the immediate aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis, 98 with the Clinton impeachment, and then 02 post 9-11. That's the only... So, you know, looking at that history, it would be you would need the president to be in a remarkably good position for for um, for his party to have a chance of holding us. And I think I think the odds are overwhelming that they will lose it. The question is, can they hold down their losses to a level that that you know keeps them in the game in twenty four, uh, or is it something that could take again, you know, like twenty ten? It could take them eight years to to mm-hmm. and a Republican president for that matter to overcome the Senate. The, the Senate, Senate, the pattern isn't as, as, as consistent historically. So I think there they have more of a fighting chance. Well, they have more of a fighting chance too, don't they? Because the Republicans seem to be stumbling all over themselves in, in getting candidates either to run or getting the right candidates to run. And of course, Donald Trump's right in the middle of all of it. The Senate is different. Um, as I noted in a piece this week, one thing that's that's notable is that the states that almost certainly will decide the Senate majority are all states that voted for Biden in 2020. And in general, the large trend over the last 30, 40 years is that it has become harder for either side to win Senate seats in states that vote the other way for president. So 25 states voted for Biden in 2020. Democrats now have 47 of their 50 Senate seats. 25 states voted for Trump. Republicans now have 47 of those 50 Senate seats. Um, uh, uh, so in general, the, the, you know, the, 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 the environment or the, the map is more favorable. But these are, of course, you know, kind of asterisk states in that. We're talking about probably the key states are uh, Democrats defending seats in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada, all of which Biden won narrowly. And then trying to win Republican health seats in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, both of which Biden also won uh, mm-hmm. narrowly. Um, uh, you know, a, a president, he, I think it, if he is where he is now in November, uh, I think it's going to be tough. I think a president with an approval rating all the way down at like 40%, 41, 42 it is a really hard hill to to over or a high wind to overcome in a state that's closely divided. Um, but he doesn't have to get all the way back to 50 for them to have a fighting chance. He probably has to get more into the mid 40s. Um, and it is possible mm-hmm. that the composition of the electorate will be more favorable to Democrats on, you know, that, 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 the, that the electorate will, will have a better opinion of him than the, than the the uh, the voters overall, if you can change the composition of the electorate. And one thing, Mike Podhorzer, who is the chief political advisor, the AFL CIO forever, he keeps pointing out that there is an extraordinarily large pool, uh, unusually large pool of individuals who have voted against Trump in at least one of the past three elections. In fact, they're over using data from Catalyst, which is that Democratic targeting firm. He uh, calculates that there are over 90 million separate human beings, separate individuals who voted Democratic in either 16, 18 or 20. And, you know, even a hmm. high turnout midterm, you'd only need 55 million votes to have a, right. a decent result. So 
Historically, it's been very hard for the party holding the White House to get its side out to vote at the same numbers as the party out of the White House. It's been true for Mm -hmm. both parties. It's been true for 150 years. Um, uh, And so, you know, if you're going to bet, you'd have to say, well, the turnout will probably lean Republican. But there is a unusually large pool of people who really are scared about the prospect of Trump being in power. And uh, if Democrats can, can make the case that a Republican Congress you know, is a stepping stone toward that, they might be able to, at least at the margins, change those historic turnout patterns. That gets us to California politics, Ron. Uh, what's going on out there? Um, Gavin Newsom uh, beat his recall election last year, um, Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, does he have any serious competition uh, for re-election this year? Uh, right now, uh, no. Um, uh, Republicans are not, you know, don't have a top tier candidate. I think the, the recall election showed the difficulty of doing that. I think the more revealing, uh, and, and maybe, uh, you know, kind of, a, a, a to see how, uh, some, some signals or leafs in the wind for November will be the recall elections on the progressive DAs in San Francisco and LA and the mayoral race in yes. LA, which gets to this whole, you know, the, these, these questions about crime uh, mm-hmm. and homelessness and, um, and, and whether liberal urban voters are just uneasy with the provision of public safety, even as they generally support criminal justice reform, um, I think I think those those will be worth watching. Uh, uh, um, uh, by the way, that that to me is an opportunity for Dem- presents an opportunity for Democrats too. Uh, the so-called law and order party, right? Who are still claiming that that's what they are, and at the same time they're out there defending the people who attacked the Capitol on January six, right? As mm-hmm. nothing but patriots or tourists. Uh, Hard well, to square. And again, Hard to is, square the two. This is the broader. This is this is the the, con, the the conundrum we were talking about just encapsulated, which is that I think Republicans will run everywhere against the idea that you know crazy liberal big city Democrats are turning over the country to criminals, and I will be surprised if many Democrats try to associate their Republican opponents with the lawless element of the GOP. Opportunity missed, I would say. Well, Ron, if only you were in charge. Yeah, you're yeah. in charge as far as I'm concerned. Well, so I mean, good yeah, to talk. You know, it's, it is, it is, it's an interesting, I mean, and look, it's not unique to this moment, Bill, right? I mean, this has been true for a long time. Um, and by the way, what, one other point about this, which is that, which is that one reason why that disparity exists is because for the most part, even when they have public opinion with them, Democrats are more comfortable fighting on economic than cultural grounds. I mean, I, I think I am just struck over the course of my reporting career how many Democrats refuse to accept that the fundamental dividing line in our politics is cultural, not economic. I mean, Bernie Sanders doesn't want to admit that. Uh, just and and centrist Democrats don't want to admit that, and they basically want to say that you know you can appeal to voters by promising to increase their material you know, uh, self-interest and their, and their economic security, that if you focus on kitchen table issues, you can win back voters who are drawn to Republican arguments on culture. I don't see it. I mean, I, I, I think there's a very limited capacity to do that. And the, the, uh, alternative for Democrats is to try to mobilize the voters who are unnerved and alienated 
by the cultural offensive that we see to bring this full circle, the kind of cultural offensive that we see going on in 23 states that in many cases, Republicans in control probably would want to bring nationally. I mean, I, I could easily imagine a national bill to ban transgender girls from high school sports or a national bill to ban male voting or, uh, you know, certainly blocking uh, national uh, rights on abortion or other things. Right. Or a national don't say gay bill. Right? Yeah. Or a national don't say gay bill. So but with this is the the view, I think the dominant view in the party, and it's not really just the consultant class, it's the elected officials too, is that this is ground that is inherently dangerous for them and that they are better off finding a way to get back to, I will protect your health insurance against pre-existing, you know, limits on pre-existing conditions. And, and I, I, it, it's, it's, it, it, I, I think it's, I think it's a mistake, uh, a, a strategic mistake for Democrats, um, uh, and and one that um, kind of ignores. Well, it's sort of like running against the wall when there's an open door next to it, you know, and, and and not going through the open door. The open door is to try to mobilize what I have called the coalition of transformation, the voters who are comfortable with the way the country is changing uh, and accept that uh, the voters who are uneasy with the way the country is changing demographically, culturally and even economically are part of the coalition of restoration. Yes, both parties recognize that gains or losses at the margins matter, but in the long run, uh, essentially seeding these cultural arguments and not leaning into them, uh, I think leaves Democrats uh, uh, in a weaker position. Uh, and that is the path forward, I believe, too, uh, as uh, articulated here by Ron Brownstein. How can people follow you on Twitter, Ron? Uh, just at Ron Brownstein. That's easy enough, at Ron Brownstein. Thanks, Ron, so much for your time. All right, keep up the good fight, and we'll see you uh, on TV and in the Atlantic and everywhere else. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with Ron Brownstein. Again, his uh, great book about 1974, Los Angeles, called Rock Me on the Water, now out in paperback. We'll have a link in the episode notes of this podcast. You can get your own copy. Well, it's another busy week here in Washington, D.C. Lots to talk about, as always, which we will wrap up with our Reporters' Roundtable on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod that is on Friday. So have a good week, everybody. Take care of yourselves, and then come back and see us on Friday for the Roundtable and the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.